I want to invite you to open your Bibles up with me to the Gospel according to Luke. We're in Luke chapter 12. Find Matthew, Mark, and then Luke in the New Testament there. If you have a pew Bible. We're going to be focusing on verses 41 through 48. We actually, I actually did not get all the way through 48 as normal. Uh, but we've been looking into what the Lord has to say to us about being ready for his imminent return over the last couple of weeks. And uh, Jason, can you, I think the monitors are kicking back quite a bit because I'm going to be booming. <laughs> there you go. I think, I think so. So we've been looking at the Lord's imminent return over the last couple of weeks. We've been given the certainty and the assurance that it will indeed happen, but what we haven't been given is the when. The second coming of Christ is guaranteed. The exact time of his coming is not. There's a gap between his ascension into heaven and his bodily return, and that is something that the Lord did not reveal to us, and so we are commended to be ready. We're to be watchful, and we're to be living in obedience, anticipating his return. And if we were to even back up further of what we've covered, say over the last month, month and a half or so, going back to about verse 13 of Luke 12, when someone in the crowd came to Jesus and he asked him to settle this civil dispute between he and his brother, the overarching theme of what Jesus has been calling us and teaching us to do through this text is that we are to reorient our lives and our priorities so that we are a kingdom-minded people. A kingdom-minded people. In other words, through what he's been teaching us here in these parables and in this week, where he's been the primary speaker of our text, what he's asking and calling us to do is to place our hearts in heaven and not in the earth. He's been repeatedly and in many different ways calling on you and me to disentangle our hearts and our affections from this world and to place them into the next. From teaching us that we we ought to consider God and not only ourselves and even our own mortality when it comes to our possessions, to teaching us not to worry about the basics of life because we have a, a loving Heavenly Father who knows what we need and He provides for the birds and He clothes the lilies to even teaching us to be looking beyond this life and into the next because our master may return at a moment's notice. All of this teaching, all of this instruction for our souls has been so that we might be a people who live for God, live for his glory, and delight ourselves in him. That's what this is about. Because, beloved, truth be told, we really need to hear this each and every day. How much did we undervalue our Lord Jesus Christ this week? How little did we esteem the wisdom of Christ? How infrequently did we thank Jesus for his provisions? How much did we let our outward enjoyments and our interests claim so much more of our time than pursuing Jesus Christ? How little effort did we exude in delighting in Him and seeking after Him and hearing His voice through His Word? How much of our week was spent in communion with Him through prayer? How often are we guilty of such things? 
Because that which we value is that which we are going to pursue with our lives. The object of our desires is that which we are going to seek out the most. And so small thoughts about God are always going to yield us a small and a cold heart. And so as we come to his word this morning and we seek to understand more and more of what Jesus has to say to us, let us couple this with the prayer that we would not just be gathering up knowledge here for the sake of just gathering knowledge that puffs up, but that we would gain knowledge that builds up. Let us pray that the knowledge that we gain would help us to be more conformed into the image of Christ, that we would perfect Uh, perfect holiness in the fear of God, as Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 7.1, that we would see the excellencies of his person over and above anything that this world has to offer. And so with these things in mind, I want us to actually pray before we read our text, and I want to ask the Lord's blessing upon us as we get started. So let's pray. Gracious God, We confess to you that all too often we are negligent in watching over our hearts and our affections. That too frequently that we are walking by sight and not by faith. That we live as if this world is all there is and we are constantly setting up idols of our hearts. By your strength and your power of your might, O God, we just pray that you would heal us to cleanse us and renew us and give us a zeal for you. Strengthen us in the most holy faith and let us find our everlasting satisfaction in your Son in whom you are well pleased. Let us be well nourished on these words that we are about to study. And may your word be as sweet as honeycomb on our lips. It's in your beloved Son's name we pray. Amen. Well, again, we are in Luke chapter 12, and we're looking at verses 41 through 48. So I want to read it to us so that it's fresh on our minds as we study it. If you're there with me in your Bibles, I want to invite you to stand, if you're able to do so, for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 41, God's inspired word says this. Peter said, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that slave says in his heart, My master will be a long time in coming, and begins to beat beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers." And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. From, for, from everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. You may be seated. 
Well, once again, we see in our text this week a mini parable taught by Jesus about a master and his slaves, much like he did back in verse 36. But as we look at these parables and we try to understand them, we have to keep in the back of our minds that almost all of the parables fall under the heading or the category of soteriology. That is, they typically deal with the doctrine of salvation in one way or another. There's about 40 parables in the New Testament. They're only found in the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There are none in John, but they all have a point. They don't have many meanings then they're not supposed to sort of like throw our minds into some sort of whirlwind with a a bunch of different meanings or interpretations. And neither are they allegories in which every single detail of the story has some sort of symbolic meaning. But they are simply stories that are brought alongside to help illustrate a lesson or a truth. And that's what the word para means in the word parable. It's sort of like a, a set of train tracks that may be parallel to one another, and they run side by side, these parables are sort of like short stories that Jesus would bring alongside to help emphasize a principle or a truth. And so we have to keep that in the back of our mind as we look at this text. And so it's really most appropriate for us to look at these parables and sort of bring them alongside of our lives, if you will, to help us understand the nature of salvation. Now that's certainly what Jesus Christ was doing in the last parable that we studied in verse 36, when he started off by using the words, be like, be like, or homoios is the word. We get the word homo, which is same. And so when he says be like, he says be the same, be like men who are waiting for their master. In other words, for someone who is saved, this is what you should model. This is what you should resemble. This is the goal that you should obtain in your life. Your life should be a mirrored reflection of what I'm about to tell you. And in the case of verse 36 there, we're called to be watchful, waiting, and hoping for our master's return, ready at a moment's notice, unashamed at his appearing. In fact, if we were going to look back from the text that we covered in the last week, there are three things that Jesus told us to be. He told us to be dressed in readiness in verse 35. Be like men who are waiting for their master in verse 36 and be ready in verse 40. All pointing to the fact that as Christians, as believers, there is never a time in which we should be looked at or looked upon as a spiritual couch potato. There is never a time in which you or I should be coasting in our Christian walk. Thank you for the amen, young lady. There is never a time in which you or I should be taking off our armor and setting it down to the side. Even as Uriah the Hittite, who faithfully obeyed his general, and he went and stood at the very front lines of the fiercest of battles, even though it cost him his very life, We too should obey our general, and we should be girded in readiness, and we should be keeping the full armor of God upon ourselves and ready to do battle at a moment's notice, even though it may cost you all of your hopes, all of your dreams, and even your very life. Does that describe you this morning? Are you awake, alert, and dressed for your master's return? 
Are you laying yourself down on the altar of daily obedience? Are you denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following Jesus Christ in the path of obedience? If someone were to walk up to you and ask you, are you in a state of readiness for the Lord's return at any moment? Would you be unhesitant in answering that question with a yes? This is what Jesus Christ has called us to do. This is the high calling that he is placing upon our lives as we bring this parable alongside for our comparison. And so, as the disciples are listening to Jesus teach this, and and that's who he's been talking to since verse 22, Peter, who is usually the spokesman for the disciples, he comes up and he stands up in verse 41, and he says, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? Now, we have to ask this question. Why would Peter ask this question? Why would he say this? Why would Peter speak up and ask for a clarification about what Jesus said? The text doesn't really tell us specifically why he would ask that. It doesn't really answer that question. But if we had to come up with an answer to that question, we would first have to look at what Jesus had just said in the previous verse. He said in verse 40, You too be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now, could it be that Peter couldn't quite grasp the fact that the long-promised Messiah was going to leave and come back again? Could it be that Peter was a little confused about Jesus' teaching that the Son of Man was going to return once more? I want you to flip back to chapter 9 with me really quick. Chapter 9 of Luke, and I want you to look at verse 44. Luke chapter 9, verse 44. In chapter 9, the twelve had just been sent out to proclaim the gospel and to heal people. Jesus was performing all kinds of miracles. We had the 5,000 that were fed with the five loaves and the two fish. A few days later, the transfiguration occurred and, uh, where he stood on the mountainside with Moses and Elijah. And then Jesus heals the son of, man, or a son of a man who was a demoniac. And everyone's amazed about everything that's going on. But then he turns to his disciples in verse 44 of chapter 9, and he says, Let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But then look at the reaction that disciples had to that statement in verse 45. He says, it says there, But they did not understand this statement, and it was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this statement. So in the minds of the disciples, they could not grasp that the long-awaited promised Messiah, the Redeemer of Israel, was going to leave them and come back once more. Then, only other time in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus has talked about his death and his resurrection up to this point, up to chapter 12. He spoke about it in Luke chapter 11, where he said that he was going to give this wicked generation the sign of Jonah. That's the only other time he has taught about his leaving and coming back. And so in their mind of what they knew of the Old Testament scriptures, it just didn't make sense that the Savior, the Holy One of Israel, was going to leave them so he could come back again another day. The pieces of the puzzle hadn't been placed together yet. They only had a little bit of the border in the corners to start to get the picture, right? Even in John 16, verses 16 through 19, 
Jesus said to his disciples, A little while and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And then verse 17, some of his disciples said to one another, What is this thing he's telling us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. And so they are asking, What is this that he says a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. And so even after his death, burial, and resurrection in Acts 1-6, they still don't understand all the events that are going on. When they ask, Lord, is it now, is it at this time you are restoring your kingdom to Israel? And so back in Luke chapter 12, Peter's beside himself. Peter wants to know uh, to, about who Jesus is talking about. Who are you including in this? Who should be ready for what? What's this be ready for the Son of Man stuff? And now we often give Peter, we give him this bad rap like he's some sort of bumbling knucklehead or something like that. But just the opposite is true. I think Peter generally wanted to know what Jesus Christ means. I think in Peter's mind, he's probably thinking, if it's me who's supposed to be ready, I want to be ready. If that's me, I mean, if he's willing, Peter is willing to take on the entire Roman cohort with a sword. And he chopped off the ear of Malchus in John 18 to fight to death to protect his Lord if necessary. So Peter wants to know if this parable is supposed to be reflective of my life. It's a question that I hope all of us would have asked Jesus Christ. Is this state of readiness, something that I ought to be doing. This is what Peter wants to know. But Jesus doesn't answer him with a simple yes or no. Instead, he answers the question with a question of his own. And he gives them this mini parable about servants and their rewards. Look at verse 42 with me, where it says, And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? And so once again, like we had in verse 36, we have this master who's away, but now we have a steward who is in charge of Jesus' servants. And so we have to ask, what is a steward and who is this steward, right? The what question is fairly simple. It's, It's an easy one to answer. A steward is someone that's been entrusted with someone, something. There is someone who is, uh, is to manage or oversee. Or to put it in another way, a steward is someone who is responsible for another's resources. The word could even be translated house manager. You don't own it, but it was given to you to be responsible for. Much like as parents, we are stewards of our families, right? Now, to answer the question of who is a steward, a lot of commentators make a specific point and a specific application for this to apply strictly to pastors and teachers. J.C. Ryle, whom I find very helpful many times, he's pretty emphatic on this point. In fact, he says that this this text applies specifically to ministers. Now, Titus 1 which outlines the qualifications for an elder, says in verse 7, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. So in a very specific sense, pastors or elders are God's stewards who have been given a sacred trust to shepherd the flock of God by watching over people's souls. 1 Peter 5 makes this very clear as well. But in a broader context, and in light of... uh, In light of 
all of what Jesus is teaching as a contrast in verses 45 of our text. All Christians, in a sense, are stewards. All Christians have been entrusted with things or have been given things that we didn't own that we are responsible for. Every believer has been given resources by God that we are to utilize and exercise, although we never had it before. And you might say, well, what is that? What is that? And the answer is this. It is spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts. 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11 says, As each one has received a special gift. That's all believers have received a special gift. You don't go to a class to learn how to speak in tongues and ride your Honda and skin your Shinda and all those other things. You don't go to a class to learn how to do healing. It's not taught. It's a gift received by God. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So right there, Peter is telling us that each one of us as as believers have been given a special gift by God, a supernatural ability that you did not have otherwise, and it is used to build up the body of Christ. You've been given something as a gift by God, and you are to use it as a good steward or a wise manager for the building up of other believers. He goes on in 1 Peter 4 and verse 11, he said, Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So the gift itself comes from God. The power to exercise that gift comes from God. And as a steward or a manager or caretaker of that gift, you are to employ it and use it for the edification of the church, which will ultimately bring glory to God. Your use of your gift is not for the exaltation of yourself or to make yourself look good before your peers, but it is a gift to be exercised solely for bringing the glory of God to His church. And so as Christians... We are all stewards. We have all been entrusted with spiritual riches that God has allotted to our care. But I want you to notice the descriptive words of what a steward should be when he asks, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward? So first of all, it says that we as believers should be found faithful. And the word is pistos in the Greek. It's an adjective. It means worthy of trust. One who shows themselves faithful in the transaction of business or the execution of commands. It denotes a character trait uh, uh, that a person can be wholly relied upon. What you say you're going to do, you're going to do. In other words, there's a supreme loyalty and a trustworthiness about you that no one would ever think or question your integrity. There's not a shred of doubt in anyone's mind that you are dependable. You are devout, you are dutiful, you are resolute. All of these words describe you when it comes, and it comes actually from the innermost part of your character. Now, when we survey the New Testament, more often than not, this word here is used to describe the character of God. 1 Corinthians 1.9 says that God is 
faithful. That word faithful is the same word. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 says, Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Same word right there. It's one of the primary reasons that you and I can put our faith in God. It's for the sheer fact that he himself is faithful and trustworthy. It's one of his glorious perfections of his being, and he himself is faithful. Psalm 9.10 says, And those who know your name and put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. So for be far beyond our infinite comprehension, Understanding what lies under the fact is that this, God never forgets, God never falters, He never fails, and He never forfeits His word. Every good promise of His word, every prophecy, every covenant He's ever made, God is true and His promises are sure. His compassions never fail. Great is the Lord's faithfulness, as Lamentations 3 tells us. You and I will never, ever trust God in vain because he himself is faithful. He is the measuring rod of faithfulness. Just like all of his other glorious perfections, there is no way that we could actually measure or contain the faithfulness of our God. And yet, we ourselves are called to be found faithful. Jesus is telling us that the expectation of us is that we are to be trustworthy and true. If Jesus were to stand before you right now, and Jesus Christ was to examine your thoughts of your heart and the motives of your heart, would he say that you are indeed a faithful person? Would he say that your devotion to him is steadfast and true, regardless of the fiery trials that you may be going through, regardless if your eyes are filled with tears, regardless if it seems like everybody in the world is against you, regardless if it seems like all of your hopes and all of your dreams and all of your life is falling apart? Are you able to say, as Paul did in 2 Timothy 1.12, for this reason I suffer these things, but I am not ashamed? For I know who am I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard that which I have entrusted him until this day. Would Jesus Christ come and find you faithful regardless of your circumstance? God is infinitely worthy of your faithfulness. How many privileges have we been given by God that rightly deserve our faithfulness? How many times has God shown himself faithful to you? He is infinitely worthy of you being faithful to him. But then notice the second word that he uses to describe us as stewards is sensible. Sensible, phrenomos in the Greek. And it's a word that means wise and intelligent. You're a prudent person. In other words, you're mindful of your interests. That which is best for your well-being is thought out and considered carefully. Now, Jesus Christ, he used this word when he told the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25, where there were five that were foolish and there were five that were phrenomos, or prudent. 
He also used it in Matthew 7, 24, when he said, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a phronomos, a wise man who built his house on the rock. You took what Jesus Christ said seriously, and you are applying it diligently. So it's not that you're looking for your own physical well-being. This much is clear from Jesus' teaching about the rich fool who's trying to build bigger barns for his own self-interest and the uh, exhortation that we're not to worry about food and clothing, things which you need, but Jesus said that God's going to provide. But what Jesus Christ is saying in our text this morning is that when you are wise, when it comes to your soul, your spiritual health is something in which you show prudence for and making sure that you nurture and that you care for. You understand that your relationship with God is absolutely vital and to your well-being and you show wisdom in cultivating it daily. Very practically, it means that you are watchful of your eyes so they're not drawn away with covetousness or lust. Your heart is frequently examined regularly to see if there's any way about you that needs to be tended to. Practically, it means that prayer is something you do not neglect. You are ready to give a defense for the hope that lies within you. You are constantly watching for any temptation that might draw you away from your obedience to God. As William Grinnell put it in his book, The Christian in Complete Armor, he said, if you don't want to be burned, don't walk on the coals of temptation. Very practical advice, right? And so you are watching where you are stepping as you walk with Christ, lest you fall into temptation. Are you exercising wisdom and prudence in your Christian walk? Are you a person who is running from sin or are you running to sin? Are you exercising wisdom by showing yourself a workman that need not be ashamed? This should be the character of those of us who are in Christ. This should be true of us as believers and that we are faithful and we are sensible in the ways of our Master. So what do you have to gain for being faithful and sensible? What's the result of you being a faithful and sensible believer in Jesus Christ? Look at verse 43 with me. It says, Blessed is the slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. So in verse 43, we learn that the one who will enjoy the eternal blessings of Christ will be a doing steward. Not the one who plays lip service to Christ. It's not the one who acknowledges him as a good moral teacher. It's, this is not about faith, but this is about holiness. This is not about doing to get God, but doing because you love God. As J.C. Ryle put it, he said the point is here is not what a man should do to be saved, but what does a saved man do? And so when you are faithful and prudent in your relationship with God, you take your Christianity seriously. You don't turn it on and off when you go into the workplace. When you try it, you try to surrender every area of your life to Jesus Christ, and with His help, you try to walk and worthy in the manner for which you've been called. When you live your life in such a way that God is at the very center of all your decisions, all your things that you decide, all the things that you get involved in, when you are eager to render service to God, no matter what the cost, whether it be your money, whether it's your prestige, whether it's your relationships, whether it's your very life, if necessary, you take Christ seriously. 
When Christ returns and he finds you in this condition, it says you will be blessed. In other words, you are the object now of your master's special favor. You are looked upon by God as someone with whom he is well pleased. And you will enter into his presence with the sweetest, the most precious words that you could hear at any time ever in your entire life when the voice of Almighty God looks upon you and your life and he says, well done. Well done, good and faithful slave. Well done. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter, enter into the joy of your master. Well done will be the sweetest two words that you could ever possibly hear in your life. What are you actively doing for the kingdom of God? What business are you engaged in that reflects that you are a faithful and prudent person in what God has given you in the precious gift of His Son? Are you living your life in such a way that if the end of your life was on the doorstep for you this very day, would God say to you, well done? Is that what He'd say? Well done. I want to pick up verse 44 next time because I really want to show you from the Scriptures how God has promised reward and blessing for those who are faithful to God all the way beginning with the Old Testament. And I certainly did not have time to work through the rest of our text that we had, especially with a text as weighty as we are coming to that talks about eternal judgment. But if we were to bring this parable alongside of your life, and we were bringing it beside to compare you, would you be described as someone who's faithful and sensible? Is Christ your all in all? We sang about it this morning. Is He your most cherished friend? Is He the joy of your heart? Charles Spurgeon once said, If Christ is not all to you, he is nothing to you. He will never go into partnership as a part savior of men. If he be something, he must be everything. And if he be not everything, he is nothing to you. Is that true of your life this morning? There is a point at a time for a man to die, and then comes the judgment. If you are entered into that today, Would he say, well done? If we are faithful and we are sensible in our relation to Christ, treasuring him, being devoted to him, following him daily in obedience, this is the pathway to blessing, it's the pathway to joy, and it's the pathway to contentment everlasting. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, so many times I speak your word and I leave here and I feel crushed that I did not magnify you as great as you should be. And Lord, I just pray that the words I've said today would not fall on deaf ears.
That if there is someone here that is not walking with you faithfully and sensibly, that today they would see you as Christ and Lord and Savior. Father, we thank you for this time and this day. We thank you for your Son and the gifts that he has given us. Help us to walk worthy of the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.